If you're trying to make any kind of meaningful, effective change in your life, you've come to the right place. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lori Bischoff. Welcome back to another episode of We're Talking Shift. What's up for today? Well, we are once again going to tackle the concept of following your passion. Well, actually, no, that's a lie. To be more accurate, it's going to be more about unfollowing your passion. Now, this time we're going to take an even deeper dive into the highly sought after, while yet somewhat, I guess, elusive goal by the same brilliant mind that first shocked the world with the counter idea to stop searching for your passion in her famous TEDx talk, which, by the way, has surpassed 7 million views. That's no small shakes. So yes, Terry Trespiccio is back. But in case you missed our first podcast together, which was episode 105, make sure you go back and check it out. I will remind you that Terry is an award-winning writer, speaker, a brand advisor, and she was named by HubSpot as one of the top 18 female speakers who are killing it. Mm-hmm. She came in number two. And just for a little context, Oprah was number eight. How cool is that? So this woman wears a lot of hats. Oh, and did I mention she's also a comedian? And since she was last on with me a little over a year ago now, in her spare time, she's managed to birth a new book, Unfollow Your Passion, How to Create a Life That Matters to You. Looks like this. So now that I'm feeling a bit like an underachiever, uh, welcome back, Terry. Thank you. I love that you're like, oh, in her spare time, please. The world stopped while I worked on that book for a little while and my heart stopped. <laughs> I imagine. And and speaking of spare time, that's one of the things we're going to touch on later because I think there's oh, some good. really important points, yeah, to make around that. Um, but seriously, it does, it just appear that, uh, you know, from everybody outside um, watching you or familiar with what you do, it, it seems like you just whipped this book up like in record time, like, you know, like, you know, (laughs) like somebody just goes in and whips up a batch of muffins in their kitchen. Like, okay. So did the idea though, for the book stem from your hugely successful TEDx talk or was it percolating before then? Was it a result of that? How did it come up? Really good question because it seems like an obvious answer, but it isn't. Because Mm -hmm. anyone, if you look on the timeline, you'd say, oh, she gave a TED Talk in 2015. And then she probably was like, oh, I'm going to write a book about the TED Talk. Nothing could be further from the truth. Once I was done with that TED Talk, I was like, I love that talk. That was great. What's next? The idea of now going back and writing a book about that was of no interest to me. I was like, that TED Talk has its own life. It'll go on to make people uh, see their lives in a new way. That's good. And yet I was writing and didn't know what I was writing. But as someone who has written her whole life, I kind of had my eye in a book. But realize this many years ago now, right? I just kept writing without knowing where it was going. As someone who enjoys the process of writing, uh, that was more important to me than knowing what the book was because I had tried that. I'd said, oh, I should do a book about this. You should do it. Or people would say, you should do a book about that. And every time it felt like homework. I said, God, I don't, I don't know. It's like giving someone a box and saying, fill it. And that's not fun for me. I'd rather find a lot of stuff and then figure out what box it should go in. And mm. so to be honest, Lori, I had no idea. I had found, uh, discovered, actually been invited to a writing retreat that was a whole new approach to writing and da, da, da. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll try that. And I fell so head over heels in love with it that I want, went on every retreat that was available to a year for the next seven years. Um, I kept going on the retreats. I loved the people there. I just found my writing community and I loved the approach, which in brief is very different from all the other writing workshops I've done. In this particular style, no one tells you what you should do. No one fixes your work. All you do is write for 20 minutes or so, and then you read what you wrote out loud with no editing, nothing. And everyone tells you what they think is really strong about it. Hmm. I originally said, this is BS. This will never help me. When are you going to tell me what I should do to be a better writer? Come on. And she was like, and the woman, to her credit, Suzanne Kingsbury, who created this particular approach said, no, honey, this is actually how you're going to get better. And I didn't really believe it at first, but the end of that weekend, my whole feeling about writing had changed. I was so changed by that, having written my whole life, but now in my 40s, I was feeling freer than I'd ever felt. Now, you and I know that there is a freedom that comes with middle age that that is a secret no one tells anyone. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. that. 
but I had this wonderful community. Anyway, long story short, I loved the method. I went on to be certified in it. I teach it and I used it to write the book. But when I said to Suzanne, I want to write a book, but I don't know what it is. She said, just keep writing. And when you write and you realize what's fun to write and you realize what people like, you just keep doing that. And I kind of hacked my way through the forest and figured it out. But here's what happened. I had a book that I had originally called How to Swallow a Button. It was based on a story, something that happened to me, right? Yeah, I and, remember I read the story. Yes, yes, it's up there in the very beginning. As a little yeah. girl I used to play with made me swallow a button. Uh, you right. shouldn't be swallowing buttons, but she sort of made me do it. We can talk about it, but that, she made me swallow a button when I knew I shouldn't have, but I thought I had to do it because she told me to. Mm -hmm. That story did inspire the book I thought I was writing, which was how many things we're told to do that don't help. I wasn't thinking about the TED talk until I finally got this proposal to a publisher. And the publisher said, we love your writing. We think there's a lot of potential here, but I think you're forgetting something. What about that TED talk that 7 million people saw? You think you're not gonna use that? And I was like, oh, that old thing? That old dress? Do you want me to break that out again? And they said, uh, yes, please. Do you want a book deal? So they're like, cause they're looking at platforms. I was looking at content. But yeah. because of this publisher, Atrium Books at Simon & Schuster, uh, they changed what the book was. It wasn't called Unfollow Your Passion. It wasn't called anything. It was called mm. something about passion. Who knows? What is this book about? We figured it out together. But I say this, Lori, and I tell you this whole story because I know there's a lot of people out there who want to write books and they think they're supposed to know what it is first. And I just want to set that fable aside that you can write your way into it and then have someone with money tell you what you should do with it. And maybe you'll want to listen. I did. Hmm. That's a wonderful tip, actually. And I feel better about the 5,000 different little blurbs that I have written in various documents on my computer. <laughs> those are, that's part of your work. If it's a yeah. book, if it's something else. All those little bits, I yeah. kept them and collected them. And in the work, I saw what the book could be. But most people don't give themselves a chance to write first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. Because um, I have realized as I've been doing some of the prompts at the end of your chapters that oh, good. It, it, yeah, I have not all of them, but but I have been doing it and I'm getting more consistent. Um, and it, it is, it reminds me because I've gone through phases where I've done that in the past. Um, done, you know, um, like yeah. 30 minutes of solid writing, you know, um, or whatever it is, um, first thing in the morning or and, and I always, it's always beneficial and I always feel really good. It's very, it's always, no matter what I'm writing about, no matter what the, the content or the subject matter is, it's always a very spiritual process for me. And I always feel really, really good. Like I just had a dose of some, you know, magic nutrition or something, you know, for the rest of the, for the rest of the day. So it's very fueling. And um, but see, that's the practice of it. You just said yeah. it fed you. When people yes. go in and they say, well, I don't want to waste time with this unless I know I can sell it. You're going in for the wrong reasons because the act of doing it is never a waste of time. You wouldn't give back that time. Mm -mm. No. Yeah, and that's, the, and that's perfect. Um, I was going to talk about that later, but since you brought it up, let's talk about it now. Um, the value of, of practice. And you talk about this uh, in a few different places in the book, um, why we should be practicing anything. And um and how, you know, everything, basically everything is a practice. Yeah, so, absolutely. So why, helping people think about what you mean by that, everything is a practice and why um, we should be practicing anything that we do and how that, you know, benefits us. In well, I want to be careful for me about the word practice because there are people who teach, say, a yoga practice or right. a meditation practice. And that's very, for some people, it's very regimented. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I approach it in any kind of very ritualized way. But what I like to do is to keep doing. For me, practice is the action of continuing to do a thing that you want to do. If, if you don't want to do it, it's called drudgery. I hate mm -hmm. unloading the dishwasher. I hate it, but I have to do it. That's not practice because it doesn't get any better. It just, you just keep doing it. But right. the reason for practice, and this brings in another issue that you've gotten to already, I know in the book, which is bucket lists versus practice. And here's why mm. I say this, because we put a lot of attention. We put bucket list items on a high shelf. Oh my gosh, my life will be amazing if, when really, if you know something's on the bucket list that you just can't imagine what it would be like to do that once, 
I don't know that once ever changes anyone. Could you have one bungee jumping experience that actually changes your life and your perspective? Maybe a near-death experience like that probably would. Mm -hmm. But if you want to experience, and this is not just me, this is what the experts say. If you want to experience motivation and actually feel like, I want to do this, which is where people talk about passion. I want to feel drawn and I want to feel in flow and I want to feel aligned and caught up. You can't do that with a stop start. You've got to allow yourself to warm up, to keep going. And I know the longer I write, the longer I want to write. Yeah, I'm talking about in a sitting. If I mm -hmm. sit down to do any kind of write, the more I do it, the more I want to do it. But if I go, what should I write? What should I write? I'm never going to settle down. That's a kind of suffering, not yeah. choosing. But practice requires that you choose a focus. And I find people are resistant to that because if they don't have a passion, they say, oh, I don't know where to find it. Or they say, I have too many. And so I can't focus. I said, those things are not mutual exclusive. It's not, oh, I guess I'm too passionate. can't do anything. What a waste that passion is. Mm -hmm. The point is to go, well, you're going to have to choose, right? Choose one thing for a while or for at least for now. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you don't get the momentum. It's the same reason why when you sit down to write 30 minutes, after, you know, five minutes might be hard, but then 10 minutes in, 20 minutes, then you're into, it's almost harder to stop. Yes, it is. It's kind of like looking at the clock and going, oh crap, I've got to go. Right. And I don't want to, but I have this other thing now that I've committed to, I have to do so. But what you'd rather do is to just to keep going. You're right. Because once you get in like a bath. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get into the flow of it, uh, it just, um, it just, yeah, it, it sucks you in and you get lost in it. And that's a, that's that flow place. That is such a delicious place to be in. Um, Lori, our lives are so fractured by mm -hmm. distraction that we actually don't even allow ourselves to get there. Even when no one's bothering me and I'll be in the middle of working on something, I see myself do it. I turn away from the thing and I go, I wonder what so-and-so is doing. I see it. No yeah. one else. I won't even blame anyone else for that. That's me because yeah. there's something exciting about the monkey mind that jumps around. And mm -hmm. I, I notice when I'm doing it and I'll go, okay, now that's enough. Let's come back. But we resist the very thing that would bring us pleasure actually. Yeah, no, I, I can so relate to that. And I literally, um, I, I literally do the same thing though. I catch myself and then I kind of scold myself because yes. I'm like this, this, stop doing that. Why did you do that? There's nothing, there was no reason that you had to stop what you're doing I know. and go do that or look at that or pick up the phone. You know what I mean? I it's, hope you're not too uh, hard on yourself though, because everything yeah. is engineered to make you do that. Everything right. led to that. Yeah, totally. Uh, and that's the thing though. I like the fact that I'm, I'm, ultra aware of it. And so that's, I figure, you know what, I feel like at least if I'm aware of it and I go up, oh, okay, I don't need to do this right now. I'm disciplining myself to come back to this because this is what I really, really said I wanted to do. This is what I really am trying to move forward with. Um, so allowing myself, okay, uh, I just I just took that few seconds, but I caught myself and I came back because it really is everything? a training. Yeah, it's a training. It's a training. And it's a training on letting something else steal your attention. And it, and like you said, it's designed to do that, to do that, mm -hmm. to steal our attention, which, which, you know, but our attention is, is our life. I mean, if we're not paying attention to anything, then you come to that point where it's like, what is the meaning of anything? You know, because you have not been paying That's attention right. to anything meaningful, right? Well, the, when we want things to mean something, when we, when yeah. we're wondering yeah. where the meaning in our lives comes from, uh, we think we want the reward that comes from investment, but yet we're not willing to pay attention. In what world do you get to not pay, but get the rewards of investment? Never. It has to be paid, but that doesn't mean something's lost. Like all oh, that money's gone. It's just that we're actually, uh, we, we get cheap with our attention. We jump around, mm -hmm. jump around, look at stuff. And I do the same thing you do. I literally will say out loud to myself, stop. What am I, what do, what do you, and rather than beat myself and go, you shouldn't do this. I go, what do you want to do? Do you want to take a TikTok break? Or do you want to come back and do this now so it's done? What do you want to do? Because right, then it's right. a choice. It's not, I'm a bad girl for not doing it. Yeah, it totally. And it is, um, it's, it's kind of a fun game now that I've, I've called it a game that I play with myself, right? So and I'm like, and then oh. when I, when I, when I catch myself and I come back, I'm like, I win. And you know, I do well, a little Well, that's dance. a great, 
That's a fantastic way of looking at it, actually. And meditation yeah. teachers will tell you when you notice you're wandering off gently, like they say, trying to keep a puppy in your lap, like really eat gently, not like, you know, like wrap you on the wrists. Yeah. 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 There's, there's no, uh, there's no reason to be um, brutal to yourself because no. that doesn't really inspire a change in behavior. It just <laughs> inspires resistance. Right. Um, and I, and you touched on that also a minute ago, you said, and this was a, this was something I made a note of, cause I thought it was really interesting. And I want to make sure we, we say all that should be said about it. And it's on page 80 and it says, in order to make something meaningful for yourself or others, you need to actually do something and you don't need confidence first because no one starts with it, they end with it. So I just thought that's very interesting, um, making something meaningful and then that ties in with this whole thing around confidence and where does that come from? Because some people think you either have it or you don't. Oh. So kind of two things there. Let's talk about that a little bit and break that down. I have a friend who says, you don't need confidence. You need chutzpah. And she's like, I love it. Really, she's like, I'm really into the word chutzpah, my friend Elise Ben. And she says, chutzpah is the word because you don't need chutzpah over everything. You need chutzpah in the moment. That to mm -hmm. build confidence means confidence means having lots of small courageous moments. It doesn't require that I be, this is what I hate about this advice. Be more confident, be more courageous. What always? That's like saying be happy all the time? What if I'm right. sleepy? Can I be sleepy? Can I be irritable? Yes. But the idea of taking small uh, measured risks to be courageous is key. And I say this because obviously I've been having a lot of conversation, a lot of public conversations. When you have a book out, people are willing to talk to you about it. And that's amazing. But one of the things that people ask me a lot, and you start to pick up on that when you're like, hmm, that's funny, is about confidence because somehow people think that I'm just naturally confident. And I, I, it's, and I'm not about disclaiming ourselves and putting ourselves down, but I am telling you that I am not a naturally confident person. Mm -hmm. And I, and I feel like I have to say, cause people are like, well, you're just confident. I was like, no, 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 please don't, don't put that on me. Like, oh, I'm just born with it because I am name it introvert, firstborn, perfectionist, fearful, anxiety riddled all the things, but the confidence has come from not being good at everything, but knowing how someone else wants to feel when I'm talking to them and you always make them feel that you're listening to them, that you're, you know, mm -hmm. like the other mm -hmm. person wants to feel seen. And there's also a narrow window of things that, that I can talk about confidently. I was in a conversation with someone recently and I realized I was out of my depth because he was dropping names of artists and restaurants and I didn't know. And he's like, you know, and I was like, no, I don't. And I was like, oh no. And I started to be like, I'm not cultured or interesting. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't know what he knows. That's his life. Yeah. And so I brought the conversation back to him. And I said, well, tell me about this. And all of a sudden the conversation was realigned. So I feel also out of depth, but I think the confidence comes from practice, from doing some things over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that that is one way also of sort of stretching the old comfort zone? Because back to that conversation, then the old, you know, that what is it like the happiness lies outside your comfort zone or all this stuff about getting outside of your comfort zone. That's the way that you need to, that's the only way you can grow and evolve and get better at something. So that's been the old adage is, you know, to get out of your comfort zone. But you say, not necessarily which I was like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Everyone's so relieved. This, this piece of this oh. little nugget has gotten a lot of mileage. Like people want to talk about it because they've been prodded and nudged and shamed for being in their comfort zone. When in fact, that is where we thrive. That is where we are our most creative, our most inquisitive, our most confident is when we're comfortable. I think there's something very patronizing about telling someone to get out of their comfort zone. Because why did you think I was there all the time? Mm -hmm. How dare you assume I'm being lazy or whatever else people assume that means? And I'm just being comfortable. It's kind of a weird public mm -hmm. shaming that I don't mm -hmm. love. Mm -hmm. Instead, I say, we were born uncomfortable. We were born naked, wet, screaming, uh, every one of us. And any shred of comfort we can find in this life, we will grab on with both hands. 
So uh, don't tell me the tough guy who wants to be in a sweat lodge for 18 hours a day isn't also taking a first class flight home. You know, we don't opt for discomfort when we, you know, we want to be comfort and we're actually mad at people when they make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So in fact, we're going to have to endure discomfort our entire lives, which is why I emphasize staying in comfort as long as you possibly can, because it's from my comfort zone where I can take risks, where I can practice things. So one of the things you mentioned is I've practiced stand-up comedy. I mm. don't make my living from this, but it is a skill I added, right? I learned to do it. I performed it. And I, it is one of the most uncomfortable things in the world to do. Yeah. And yet I didn't do it because I was like, yeah, man, I love to do things that are uncomfortable. It's like, no, you don't. I did it because I'd love to be more comfortable up there doing that. My goal is more comfort. And the research bears it out. Marcus Buckingham, who's written a ton of the, two of the best-selling books in business, I believe, he says, and his research says it on studying how people, humans behave and how manage, great managers act, as he says, people don't thrive outside their comfort zone. In fact, if you take them outside of it by making them uncomfortable, they can't think about anything except getting back inside of it, which means you won't get the best out of someone when they're uncomfortable. You'll make them afraid, edgy, irritable, defensive. That's not how I like to live. Mm -hmm. So my goal, I'm realizing, I didn't know I had this goal, but it's becoming clear that I would like to give people permission to be comfortable and to do what they want. Yeah. And, and just to be clear though, you're not saying don't grow and, and expand and try to have new experiences. You're saying you don't have to take this big leap into this, into the fire, into something that is so scary and uncomfortable for you in order to be able to do that. You're saying do, do um, maybe small things that help you, that you feel comfortable taking a little bit of a risk in, almost like, you know, just get into the shallow, warm end of the pool and then slowly as you feel more comfortable, you know, you can go, go a little bit deeper or do some things. Well, you're you know. now, what you're saying is you're implying pace. You're saying that someone needs to go slow to be comfortable. And that's not necessarily true. People okay. who love going to amusement parks in the summer and going on a roller coaster. They don't do it to be uncomfortable. Amusement parks either comfort zone. They like thrill. They like adrenaline. So it's not about, I'm not going to tell someone to go slower. If they love to dive into things, I love to jump into things quickly. Okay. It business and it becomes to, you know, creative stuff. I love to jump in and do it. It means identifying what you're comfortable with mm -hmm. uh, and not doing things you hate or uncomfortable doing because someone thinks it's good for you. I don't like okay. good for you medicine. Got so it. You might love a thrill and try something and someone else might not want to, but here's the thing too, the fear of being too comfortable. Let's address that. Because people will say, well, if you're too comfortable, you'll never try anything. I am very comfortable as often as I can be. And I take risks because I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So yes, that idea that being comfortable is the same as being complacent and lazy, disagree. If you're in a small place, whatever small is, a comfy, a job that you've become used to, a relationship you've become used to, an apartment, and, that, and it was so comfy, but after a while, you start to be like, it's uh, tight in here. That's, that's not comfortable anymore. Comfort might mean more space, more freedom. So there's a lot of people in their regular jobs where they seem to be comfortable, but in fact, they're really uncomfortable because they resent it. They're bored. They don't like the work, but people accuse them of being too comfortable when realize they'd be more comfortable if they took a, maybe a flying leap into something else. Okay. I get it. So it's very customized that, it is that whole totally comfort. customized. You and I might have totally different comfort zones. Mm-hmm. Okay. So since you mentioned stuff about people's jobs, uh, let's talk about, let's talk more about passion. Is it really critically important that a person feel passionate about their job? I think that you, your capacity for passion is more important than any one job. Case in point, uh, this, first of all, the idea that I have to find, I'm passionate about fashion. So I guess I have to work in the fashion industry. Maybe mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who love fashion, who spend one year in the fashion industry and go, nope. So should you love your job? Uh, you shouldn't hate your job, but rather than wonder if this is your passion or that's your passion, blah, 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 uh, the idea is to understand how you have your own access to passion so that you can experience it. My sister 
who I wrote about in the book, she has a job as in a pharmaceutical company doing a very technical job. She never woke up and said, you know what I want to do? She found this job by, by being in the right place at the right time and then realized, oh, she was good at this. And because she knows and knows how to solve the problems of the job, she, it isn't her one enduring passion, but she's, she does, she said, I do it passionately. And the mm -hmm. example from my life, I'll tell you is I never once said, man, I wish I could work in financial services. Not once, never, ever, ever. But my own work as a speaker has brought me into contact with the financial services professional like, industry. And one by one, they've hired me to help them to rebrand their firms, to help them communicate with their clients better, all this stuff. I didn't choose financial anything because I know nothing about it. I still know very little. I only know enough to do what I do well. So say this week, I had many calls with advisors talking about their firms. On what planet did I ever think that would be interesting? These were some of the most passionate conversations I've had because I brought what I knew to the conversation and what I thought would serve them. And they got excited because I was listening to them. Mm -hmm. If you can bring passion with you, you will bring it anywhere to any job. But if you're waiting for a job to deliver passion, you're going to be out of luck. Yes. That's such a great distinction um, to do whatever it is you're going to do, bring it with you, bring the passion with you, uh, because otherwise you make it you make it something that's outside of yourself yes. that you have to that you have to search for if you think that you haven't found it yet. And that's that's like, you know, trying to catch up to the mirage on the highway, oh my you God. know, uh, right. Uh, you just you, you can't uh, you can't quite ever get get to it right it, it evaporates yes. before you get there we'll let you down or you'll go i didn't think this was going to be why well, you couldn't have known where it was going to be i'd rather think of myself as like a really great lamp i can light up no matter where you plug me in mm -hmm. it's not like well i'm a bedroom light no uh, is there an outlet i'll plug in i light up to whatever something i can get into wherever i can get some footing and oh well let's talk about that i can be passionate about whatever in fact my grandfather who was a state policeman in uh, Pennsylvania, I, he died when I was really young, but I know the stories about him. And he was just kind of like a simple guy. And he said, he used to say to my mom, you know, and he was eating lunch. He was like, I can have just as much fun with a salad. He thought a salad could be fun. He said, anything could be fun. I could have fun with a salad. And I was like, that's it. That's it. Can you have fun with a salad? I personally, I also have fun with a good salad. But mm -hmm. if you see through the lens of passion, you'll never be without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're the source. That's right. You're the source. You're the fountain. Interesting. Um, okay. So then we come back to, and I've, I've worked with m many clients on this myself. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know what I want to do. And especially now with this, the great upset of the last what seems like eternity, but a couple yeah, no. of years, right? Um, so the great upset and people, uh, you know, it's like so many people, their lives have been, you know, shaken up like in a basket and dumped upside down and they're going, what the fuck? Um, right. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the future brings. So I don't know what my future looks like. I don't know no which direction. Knew. Right. Yes. So, so let's, let's, let's share a little bit uh, of wisdom about that on that subject, you thought you knew, you, you thought it was the, the way it was paved maybe before you assumed, <laughs> right? You assumed never that things paved, were, right? But that's the yeah. assumption. Then all of a sudden when it's, you know, really blown up in a big way, you're like, oh no, you know, now, now what? Now what to do? Uh, now I'm on an unpaved road. I'm completely thrown, thrown off course. And I don't know how to make plans for my future. What I thought I was passionate about, I it's not available yep. to me anymore, you know, yep. whatever. So what what kinds of things might you impart on people to think about in this for those who are still kind of struggling with what do I do next and how do I figure that out? The elude <laughs> yes, and that mm. the idea that you had a plan that was guaranteed was the illusion. The idea that the world was a secure place before the pandemic was an illusion. Because in 2001, after 9-11, people were like, oh, now we're living in unpredictable. 
it's always unpredictable. That's, mm-hmm. uh, I just trust, stumbled over that word. It's always unpredictable because that's how this stuff happens in the first place. If anything, though, this protracted experience of the pandemic mm-hmm. has taught us, and I wonder what the impact will be on younger people who grew up with this, is that it it makes us take plans a little more lightly. Because I thought for sure by the time my book came out, I'd be on a book tour. Nope, no one's going anywhere. Uh, it's still like that. But can we take an air of curiosity for one to say, hmm, we never know. Imagine if you knew everything was going to happen. I think that's real boring. And I don't even want to be the orchestrator of all that. I don't want to be responsible for planning every second of my life because then there's too much responsibility on me. I kind of don't mind that we have a little, well, look, I wouldn't call the pandemic a little dip. It's a lot bigger than that. But when we think about plans, my thought on this is think about your ability to plan as more important and valuable than any one plan. Because the more attached you are to the outcome of a plan, the less you are able to plan. Because if you, some people tell me, I love making, I'm a planner. Some, show me someone who's a planner. They actually, okay, they're good at making plans, but they're more control freak, right? They're more like, these are the plans that has to work out this way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, when you say I'm a planner, well, then you better be ready to then replan. Because if these plans go sideways, you're going to have to plan again and again. And if you're really a planner, you'll love that. But if you're really just someone who wanted to know, you will always be disappointed. So plans change. This got changed. This got booted. I, I try to keep, here's the advice. I try to keep a very light grip on plans. And I always say, well, well, what if that doesn't happen? Then what? I don't go, but no, but this has to happen. No, nothing has to happen. Nothing has to yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like that too. It's it's that need for certainty. And some people have that's a greater need than for others. And I'm like you. I try to be plans are fun and it's exciting sometimes to feel good about everything in its place, sort of, and how you think it's gonna move forward. But it's even more it's more freeing to not be attached to it so that because probably a good half 50% of the time, depending on you know what what area we're talking about, if there's other people involved and such, that they're gonna change. They're, they're not gonna follow through exactly how you've laid it out. And the freedom to, to be able to just flow with that and be like, oh, all right, well, maybe, maybe something better is actually brewing here. And could I be. could, right? Maybe something better uh, for somebody else or for me is brewing. Um, and uh, I, can, I can go with that. And that is just so much less struggle and stress and suffering than if you are upset because it didn't pan out the way you planned. Of course, and easier said than done. I mean, I'm talking a big game here when I'm the one who my mother would be grabbing me by the arms and saying, please, just try to go with the flow of it. If it doesn't happen, just try to ease up. Like she told me that for years and years because I was so rigid and so disappointed, but that's the difference. That's what Eckhart Tolle talks about, right? Mm-hmm. The attachment to it, uh, the suffering after, the person who still hung up, but that was supposed to be, no, it wasn't. Right. So we, and if we don't acknowledge that, we have to move, we have we have to protect ourselves from the disappointment by realizing that someone won't show, something will get canceled, a train won't come, a plane will be delayed, and on and on it goes. Mm-hmm. And the difference is not that some people get their way. No one gets their way. It just happens. And the winners are the ones who can keep going. Beautifully said. Let's talk about, I really, really like the way that you lay out for people in the book about the differences between skill and talent. Uh, Why is it important to know the difference um, if you want to get good at something? How do do they differentiate? Well, I have, will say though, I have even evolved. I mean, this, you know, when a book comes out, it was written a year ago or more. I have since even evolved this thing further. So I'll say what I said in the book, because I was kind of hating the talent thing, because I think people assume that it's like a birthmark or green eyes, you're born with it or you're not. Mm-hmm. And oh, I don't have a talent for that. They're so quick to dismiss themselves as not having talent. I love skill because I don't like the victimizing of genetic pool. Like, oh, well, I can't do this. Do some people take to things easier than others? Of course, but yeah. we underestimate skill. And I quoted directly Seth Godin on this one. He says, mm-hmm. 
It's insulting to call a professional talented. She is skilled. She's worked hard to get there. And I think that's why it kind of bothers me a little bit. People are like, well, you're obviously an expert. And it's so natural. Like I did some media that got some attention about the book and people are like, oh, you're just a natural. And that didn't make me feel better. So mm. I worked really hard. I don't, mm. no one gets anything out of being a natural. Oh, so you're saying I didn't earn it. You're saying right. I just luckily did and that you can't do it because I'm a natural. No one wins. I have worked for years to be able to be pithy and tight and to make sure I could do it. It's a skill. And yes, I have a particular affinity for it. What I've learned since from Marcus Buckingham, whose great books I'm reading now even more closely, he says, talent, the best managers, he says, don't see talent as just, oh, I have it or I don't, box checked. They said, talent is how you see the world. It's your filter. And I love this because it's the way he talks about it is a growth mindset approach. Yes, mm -hmm. you have certain talent, but after you've been in the restaurant industry for 20 years, you not only have skill, but you do have a talent for it, meaning there's a certain ease, there's a certain intuition now, there's a certain way of seeing things. Um, you know, like I'm, my boyfriend is a, is a New York City office, a cop, he's a cop. And he's always looking at things around him at every second that I totally miss. Yeah. It is trained and it is a talent. I walk by people wielding box cutters. I don't even see them. And he's like, look out for that guy. So I mean, we each, I say this because I don't want people to assume they don't have a thing. You have right. talent. Everyone has it. It's a matter of how their talent informs the work they choose to do. Yeah, that's really, really good. I love that. And it's really important. Yeah, because if you are, if you think of it in those terms, um, and and you think you're paying somebody a compliment? Uh, it's it's good to think a little bit deeper because it, in a way, if it is something as you say that they have worked hard at and and practiced and and done all of the things that they needed to do to become so good that it's noticeable now. Uh, to say that it's to to limit it to talent is to kind of minimize all of the effort that went into it as well. And like you said, why, why do you think? Yeah. Like I said, what? Oh, sorry, I cut you off. Like you said, then, then you kind of feel like, um, oh, it, it came easy. I didn't have to do all that much to earn this. Uh, yeah. Right. It's, it's why women also like, why do we buckle at the comments on appearance? especially mm. women, because if you're like, oh, you're just a pretty woman or you're a beautiful woman, um, you just have those nice cheekbones and that hair. And, you know, uh, I didn't pick the cheekbone. Well, some people did, but, you know, I didn't choose it. And, and so it's kind of like, or someone else didn't choose it. So then you make them feel bad for having a thing they didn't choose. You are mm. born into a physical form. You can mm -hmm. do things with it. Mm -hmm. Wonders of contouring, but still no one likes to be reduced to one thing. Yes. That's the problem. Yeah. Because if I say, Lori, you are, you are a beautiful woman. But if I say, Lori, you have beautiful eyes. It's not like you did anything to deserve it. You were just born. So whatever, I guess you're just lucky. That doesn't make anyone feel good. You were yeah. born with those eyes. And, and then it's a little bit awkward, like, um, well, you know, thanks, but I can't really take credit for that. And then you feel like, that's, that's I don't not, not that you don't appreciate the compliment, but it's just a weirdness. It's a, it's awkward. Yeah, that's why I love to compliment people on things that they did or on their, you know, like it's a difference between, like I was saying in the workshop, we only talk about what's working in someone's work, but you mm -hmm. don't say, oh my God, Angela, you're such a good writer. That is, makes everyone feel awkward. Like, oh, so someone else isn't a good writer. So yeah. that's why we say, I love how you did this in the piece. This was really powerful. It's specific. It's okay. not, you are this, you mm -hmm. are that. I just, everyone buckles at it. We don't mm -hmm. like it. Mm -hmm. I see that. I see that. It makes me think a lot more about that now. Uh, yeah, just, a, just in a much broader way. Let's, let's talk for a minute. Um, let's talk about time. Because uh, I, I know that in, in your book club, which is really interesting, um, the subject has come up. And, um, and this is interesting because we it's such a it's such a weird thing for uh us to try to wrap our heads and wrap our hands around because it's it's like a a concept or something yeah. you know what i mean right and so it's not uh, i can't i can't do this with it and and uh, you know I, I can't move it over here uh but it, let me say first of all um and I, I just had him. Uh, I just had him on. I think it was a, 
two weeks ago, um, Neil Donald Walsh. And he has this great quote wow. that I love. And he says, he says 90%, 98% of the world's people are spending 98% of their time on things that don't matter. <laughs> and I was like, how does that apply to me? And I started paying attention. Yes. Right. Because how because we all say, oh, I didn't have time to do that. I don't have time to do that. You know, there isn't enough time in the day. If I could only stay up all night, you know, everybody's worried <laughs> about this, this, you know, they've only got this much time and it's different than the amount of time you have or or she has or he has. Right. We all somehow have different amounts of time and and, you We're know, the same time. Right. We all have the same. We all have the same at least available time while we're while we're alive and breathing. Right. However long however many days you have. But um, I started thinking a lot about that, about, okay, pay, just paying more attention. It kind of goes back to, you know, getting distracted by things um, yeah. and then and losing that time. But I was, but when I'm spending it, when I am using my time, am I, am I spending 98% of it on stuff that doesn't matter? And I really started to think about that. Um, and I just thought that that was really interesting. And you talk about, um, you talk about you talked a little bit about it in one of the one of the Tuesday night book clubs, um, and I can't remember the the exact context of it now, but but it was tied in with boredom. Yes, I thought that's and, where you're going because that is an interesting concept: the relationship between time and boredom. Yeah, so spending time on things that don't matter. Um, that's a probably a good thing to start paying attention to, especially if you feel like you have things that you want to do and you can just never get to it, right? Because you don't have enough time. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. But then, uh, then this whole concept of boredom, and I think that that would be a really, really great thing to talk about. Oh my gosh. I mean, I didn't think I was going to include a chapter on boredom because I, I didn't really think about it much. Mm -hmm. But when I thought about that last section of the book is, okay, what if you do everything you feel like you can be doing and things go sideways, plans and, or plans get canceled, relationships and uh, people die, horrible things happen in the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're just hit with a little bit of malaise, right? Some boredom. So I was like, I don't know what I think about that. So I did some reading and I came across this little book called The Power of Boredom by Mark Hawkins, who as an author, I've never found an author harder to find. Usually someone has a book out there, easy to find. Can yeah. I get in touch with this man? And, oh. uh, but he changed my mind about boredom. And he said, people think that we can't be bored because we're so busy. He said, in fact, the busier you are, the more bored you likely are. It's just that you don't know it. And the problem is that we're more afraid of being bored. And so we tread water at the top of the, you know, staying very busy because it feels, it scratches an itch. It makes us feel very productive, but it also avoids that. It keeps us from looking into the void which if you've mm. ever laid around bored and had nothing really urgent and you didn't want to watch anything, you didn't want to read anything and blah, and you lay there and you think, God, I should be more productive. Should you? Mm. Because the research is showing that when you are allowing yourself some time to let your brain lay fallow, mm. that actually it allows for real creativity, real ideas to come up. But if you crowd the top, it's like crowding the top of the water with too many boats. There's nowhere to surface. And mm -hmm. so there's no room for that to surface. And so I read that. I, it's a short book. I read it basically in one sitting. And then I remember it was a Saturday night and it was late. And I said, what happens if I just shut this book and do nothing? I'd never intentionally, maybe I'm like, okay, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to do this. But there was no posturing. I like mm -hmm. boredom because it's like the every man's meditation. I don't have to assume a posture. So I sat there and I just stared into space. I said, I'm going to sit here for like 15 minutes. I set a timer and I sort of dozed off and, and I was like, who cares? Now I make sure that I allow myself to be bored. Now, when I get stressed, my go-to is to nap. I need to lie down. Like that's just what I do when I get really stressed out. And lately I had some stressful stuff going on in my personal life. And I, I allowed myself to get really bored. I said, none of this stupid stuff matters. What if I just lay on the couch and just lay here and let myself, something will surface as a result, but it can't if I don't give it space. Mm -hmm. If our fear of boredom, if we let it to persist, we risk clouding out real meaning. Because he says the opposite of boredom isn't busy. 
or excitement. The opposite of boredom is meaning. And here's the part that blew my mind was that if you allow yourself to get bored where nothing seems to matter, that's like a detox because you bring it down to zero. And if nothing matters, then you're going to slowly add back in. Well, what really matters right now? Because I'm real bored. So something better be really worth it. Mm-hmm. And I choose, but I'm probably not going to spring up and do a million things other people need. If we don't allow that to happen, we risk being busy over things that really don't matter, but we don't allow ourselves to determine if they matter. So mm-hmm. it's like a reset on meaning. It makes boredom sort of sacred. That's so interesting. And doesn't that tie in so fascinating with um, 98% of the world's people, right, are spending our time doing things um, that that don't matter 98% of the time that don't matter. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if if it doesn't matter, then there's no meaning. And so to tie this up in a nice, neat bow. That's right. That's right. right. Well, if you ask someone, what are you doing right now? Why I have to do this? I just, did you ever stop and go, why? Why? Like I'll say, like my most productive time is like between seven and nine in the morning. And Mm -hmm. I'll sit down, I'll be like, all right, this is the biggest bang for your buck for the whole day. Like what deserves this attention right now more than anything? What would you want to say at the end of the day that you did? Can we do that now and worry about nothing else? We're good at procrastinating. Procrastinate other stuff, put everything else off. And then at least you have claimed some time for yourself. Mm -hmm. That's my time too. In the morning. Yeah, definitely. From about, like yeah, from about 7.30 to 9.30-ish, yes. give or take. That's like the sweet spot. And I don't want anybody to fuck with it. I yeah. just want my coffee. Yes. And to be left alone. <laughs> no, I don't want to, I don't want to hear what the news story you're listening no. to. Like, that was actually a thing that I felt like, I was like, I should be tuned into CNN from seven to 10 every night. And I was like, I should be tuned into all the world stuff. And I felt like I was behind on the coursework of American civic life. And I do feel that still. I have a tremendous guilt around not keeping up with all of the stuff in politics. My sister keeps up with it a lot and I have a hard time keeping up and catching up. And mm-hmm. I have a little guilt about that. But when I said to myself, God, I should just have the TV on and just watch all the time. I said, who wants me to watch CNN all the time? CNN. <laughs> like they're the only ones who want me to listen. Well, any news channel, like, do I want to yeah. watch MSNBC? Well, do I have to watch it all the time because it makes me a better person? That's one hell of a sales pitch. If you can mm-hmm. make the news, make it feel like that's my job is to listen to your news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could do that sometimes, but I found that when I don't do it, it doesn't change my day. If I don't watch it, I don't miss the news. No. No. Plus you have a sister that's tapped in. So if anything earth shattering happens, tell you me. need to know about, she's going to text you. Right? Tell me the, show me the tweets. She'll select, yeah, select she'll, the tweets. Yeah. Yeah. She'll, she'll inform you. So you're off the hook. You've got a runner. You're off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of guilt, everyone, so you might have guilt about something else. Someone else has a guilt about a different thing, but sure. who do we owe our time to? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, do I owe all my time to everyone? Because there's plenty of people, you're right. And so is Neil Donald Walsh because he knows everything, uh, truly. Uh, if we run around being busy, we will do that till we drop dead. You can do that. It's a choice. Can you just fill your time with what people would love you to do, need you to do? Or are mm-hmm. you going to claim any of it? Because it's literally all you have. Your money, everything you're going to leave behind. Your wardrobe, your shoes. Someone else is going to get that stuff. Oh, the, the shoes, the shoes. The shoes, all of it. But your time is the only thing you're allowed to claim. Yeah. And the, the time, what you're doing with that time, every minute of the day, every day, you know, year after are you year. A, are you a napper? No. You can't do I it. Don't, That's nope. a skill. No, nope, can't do it. Re- about once a year, seriously. Once, once, a year? once a year, I'll have a day where I'm just like, like in the middle of the day, and this is so counter to my nature, but in the middle of the day, for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just, I didn't sleep well for a few nights or maybe, uh, who knows, we, but once about maybe once a year, I'll feel like, I think I'm going to lay down and then I'll take a very, I'll take a very light nap, but the slightest noise, if I'm seven minutes into that nap, which usually <laughs> never the slightest, slightest noise will wake me up and that's it. I'm done. I can't, I can't get, I can't go back. There's no going back. So, you know, if you, 
if the wind like picks up, which it does frequently here in Wyoming, and we have 20, 30 mile an hour wind gusts, you know, and the doors rattle or the dog barks, or I literally hear my husband walk down the hall, bing, it's, I don't know. I I don't know where it comes from, but yeah, I'm up. So there's no napping for this one. Uh, Once I'm up, I'm up. I live on them. I live on and by them. And my mother trained me early because as Mm. soon as we would get upset, she would as not as little babies. I'm talking about, I come home from high school, like all worked up and tired with hours of homework ahead of me. And she would say, go to bed right now. Like at three o'clock in the afternoon, she'd put me to bed and I would sleep for about an hour, get up, have dinner. And then in a very calm state, proceed with my homework and be up later. But I had that nap and I did it all through high school, all through college as an adult. And, and I'm, and of course now the research shows that napping is really, really great for you if you can do it, but it yeah. is something I cultivated because if I lay down for even, I don't have to be REM sleep. I might just be laying there sort of drowsy, but mm-hmm. after 20 minutes I get up and I was like, I'm ready. It's a total recharge. So mm-hmm. that seems like, Oh God, if anyone knew I was napping or what am I doing? But it's what it gives me the power to keep going. So, but that's yeah. another way of reclaiming time. Cause there's some shame in this culture around sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that like to have a a little nap in the afternoon and it works for them. And I say, you know what? I mean, if you found the formula that works for you so that you can feel like you're really doing what you want to do through the day, throughout the day, if you, you know, uh, if you feel good about it. I have two days in one. I have the first time I wake up and I have the second time I wake up. I get two full rounds of energy from that. Hmm. Interesting. No, I mean, if I could, but I just lay there going... (laughs) You're not going to do it. No. I mean, maybe I'll paint that wall. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's probably time to dust again. You know, <laughs> no, I'd be, I would, I, if I wasn't like really like exhausted and needed to sleep. And even then I have. Could uh, you let yourself be bored? Could you let yourself lay there for a sec and like just I, stare off into space? I can. Cause I, I have no problem just being still. I mean, yeah. I can, I can meditate or I can read or I can just sit and and drift and think and be still. I don't- You give that to yourself. uh, Yes, I do. Absolutely. On a pretty regular basis. Not always in the afternoon, but but yes. Um, And I I don't have a problem. I'm not one of those persons that uh, needs to always have something going in my ear. Uh, I don't need to have the TV on in the background. I don't need to have music on. I prefer quiet. I just prefer quiet. I like, I like silence. So, so that works for me. I'm just not a, a sleeper in the middle of the day. Um, you know, and if I'm going to try to nap and I got to like read a few pages of something first, just sort of lull me into it. There's something about that yes. eye movement that makes me yep. sleepy. So, so that's, that's the way that rolls out. But, <laughs> but uh, let's talk for a second. I know we're closing in here, so I won't keep you much longer, but I, I, this is just kind of random. I didn't, I didn't know what page I read this on, or maybe it was, I heard it on in the group talking about, um, being aware of fixing the difference between fixing and making when it comes to our time. Oh gosh. The world would love us to just buy their solutions. And if we're going to buy solutions and a lot of our culture and economy is based on solutions, we have to believe that we always have something to fix. And that whole learning, that whole method uh, around writing that I told you about, um, the gateless method, reminds us of how often we, we lean on our natural ability to flaw find, right? We naturally do it. It's, it's, we don't get any credit. Like, you know, there's always someone who criticizes everything that makes them feel smart. But the fact is that's built into the wiring, the good old wiring to make sure that, you know, we're able to stay safe. Mm-hmm. The problem is that if we turn that on ourselves, which unfortunately some of the self-help world has encouraged us to do, is to look for problems to solve, uh, that can mean that we never actually get to the, to me, that's like very navel-gazy. If we look too much, of course we should know ourselves and all that is very important. But if we spend too much time on the fixing, then we don't get any forward momentum. And so Mm -hmm. I don't think fixing and making are necessarily opposites, but the idea that people keep telling me is, that they want meaning, they want to do things, they want to make a difference, or they want to make art, or they want to make something. And yet they think that, well, but I have to fix this first. I'm not good enough at that. They're forever looking back at the thing they have to fix. And mm-hmm. what, what what it propelled me to do was sort of 
think about the meaning even of the word fix. And to fix is not just to solve, it's to literally fix in place. It's to, you know, screw mm. it into place to make it sturdy. All this thing's loose, you better fix it. Mm. Well, fix means to make it secure so it's not wobbly or whatever. But if fixing means to make something set by screwing it in tight, mm -hmm. do we need to be fixed to find momentum in our lives or do we actually need flow? Do we need to be free? If instead of trying to fix things, we said, well, how can I be free of that? Or how can I find freedom in that? Then we'd be less obsessed with nailing ourselves to plans and problems, and we could actually move. And when you can move and get some momentum going, then you can make whatever it is you want to be making. We are mm -hmm. makers by design. We just are. Mm -hmm. Right. Not necessarily yeah. fixers, but that's not the job we all signed up for. So that's that's yeah. the thinking just because it makes me so crazy when i when people only talk about what's wrong with them right right that's that's so interesting too because also you know to your point if you're if you stop focusing on on what you perceive is the fixing uh that needs to be done and you're focused on you know what the making of something and the creating of something then almost by default what you thought needed to be fixed sort of takes care of itself it, or it won't be that it falls into the 98% category. Right. Yeah. I love that 98% thing. I'm I so, love that. Right. So interesting. Okay. So before I let you go, because we talked about quite a few things that are, that are some of the meat of this wonderful book, unfollow your passion, you guys, what it's such a wonderful book. It Thank really you. is. And you are, you're like an amazing coach. You really, really are. I don't know if that's your intent or it's not funny. I don't consider myself a, quite a coach that way, <laughs> but you, but this is very, but I'm like, Hmm, maybe I can hire her. <laughs> so Does it sound like it could, would you say it's a coaching book? I've never actually heard anyone say it quite like that. Uh, yeah. I would say that there are many of the Many of the ways that you positions the, the concepts that you're talking about are very in alignment with at least a lot of the ways that I th th coach my clients. And I think it's really brilliant. And, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. I really think that's true. Well, thank it's really, you. I'm not yeah. certified as a coach, so I'd be careful. I go claim that title, but no, but but it, but you could. It's really, really good, and um, I think that anybody um, that would pick it up and read it or listening to it um, would definitely walk away with some wonderful nuggets. Um, next time we'll have to talk about the swimming story because I was like, oh my god, that's me. The swimming, the swimming well, in the water and the and the. Wet. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the water. <laughs> yes, that Terrifying. that was a great story. We'll we'll save that for perhaps another time in the future. But um, but yeah. So what uh, are there any last nuggets that you want to leave people with specifically about unfollowing your passion in order to help you create a life that matters? I think the less we berate ourselves for not finding the right anything, right life, right job, right whatever, um, the more time you spend worrying that you have the wrong thing, the less the, the less time you have for yourself. And my goal is not for anyone to live, uh, to live like this person or that person, but to really figure out what you, how you want to be. Because a lot of women, especially, they allow other people's needs to define what they do. And I get that people with families and they have those obligations, but rather than think that you have either one passion that you have to find and follow or that you've missed a calling. Mm -hmm. Put those things out of your mind. Instead, where can you bring passion to the table wherever you go so that, so that you could actually, can we just be real here so you can actually have more fun mm -hmm. so that you can feel freer in your own life? I mean, fun and comfort, they all look different to different people, but if you yeah. can give yourself some space to breathe, then you can determine, of course, that's right for you and not just what other people expect you to do because there's a mm. big difference there. I love that. I love it. We didn't get to your Uncle Bob story. Damn it. Well, Uncle this Bob. is great because I basically just invited myself back is what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm saving, I'm saving all the notes. I didn't Save check it. off on this call and we'll do it again. Yeah. Cause I, I really want to hear about Uncle Bob. Uh, 
I, I love uncle stories. I have two amazing uncles in my life that are like my first two dads. So I have an affinity for, for favorite uncles. So Aww. we got to talk about that. Yeah, we, we got to talk about a couple other things. So um, definitely, yes. I would love it if you would come back. And where's the best place for people to find out more about you, the book, and all of your well, wonderful services? The easiest thing to remember, and I'm no dummy, is to go to unfollowyourpassion.com. Of course I bought it. So if you go there, it'll redirect to my site. And then from there, you can wander around and see what's appealing. But if, whether you're like, well, I don't want that book, but I'd like to listen to her, get on the list so that I can be in touch and tell you about cool things that are coming up. Because that whole comfort zone thing, I'm starting a series of workshops that are designed to help people expand the comfort. And mm. you can only find out about that if you know, you're, we're in touch. So Perfect. I'm on all the platforms, you can find me. Yeah, perfect. So we'll put the website, uh, that one and your other one, we'll put them in the show notes so that it's easy Thank for you. people to click on and find you and find all your social media and all that good stuff. So uh, as always, this was delightful. I, I love thank our you. conversations and I am very much looking forward to the next one. Yeah, me too. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So supportive. Uh, my pleasure. Totally. Um, everybody, please make sure that you check out uh, check out Terry sites. She really does have some amazing things some tools. The book is amazing. So don't, uh, don't, don't, don't let too much time go by. Strike while the iron is hot. I know you're all yes. like kind of, yeah, you're hyped up about it right now. And uh, if you missed it, also go back and listen to our first, um, our first episode. It was uh, 105 that we did last year. And uh, hey, that's a wrap, you guys. So remember, the antidote to feeling stuck starts by shifting your thinking. So I hope that this has caused you to shift your mindset a little bit, feel more at ease as you move forward in your life. All right, until next week, stay feisty, my friends. Maybe stop chasing after your passion for a minute or anything else that you're chasing after and go make some epic shifts happen in your lives. And that goes for you too, Gary Vee. Ha, 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 ha.